The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We finished the first three chapters, and now we're going to begin chapter four. Cutting it off at the end of chapter three was actually a logical break in the book of Revelation, so I'd invite everybody, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to, well, we're going to get to Revelation chapter four, but before we do, I just want to kind of remind us of what we've covered just very briefly and also to bring some of you up to speed if you haven't been a part of our study in Revelation. So from here on out, we're going to be going through uh, Revelation about a paragraph at a time. Chapters 4 through 22, we've already laid the groundwork. A very logical book. Uh, when I became a believer at age 19, this was one of the first books that I just jumped into and spent a lot of time reading and memorizing and studying and reading commentaries on. It just absolutely fascinated me and I found it uh, not just curious, but very exciting and also very comforting. Uh, Revelation was written, designed to be a comforting and practical book for God's church. We're going to see that. Uh, but let's just hit a couple of highlights in Revelation chapter 1, and then we'll go ahead and go to chapter 4, verse 1, where we're going to pick up uh, some things we've covered just by way of reminder. The Revelation of John, this of the last of the 66 books of the Bible, the last book in the New Testament that was written probably around 95 A.D., written by John the Apostle, who was a disciple and an apostle of Jesus Christ, an eyewitness of Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry, one of Jesus' best friends during Jesus' earthly life and could very well have been a distant relative of Jesus. So John was very close to Jesus. John the Apostle was also the only apostle that we know of out of the 12 that didn't get executed or murdered for his faith as a martyr uh, 11 of the other 12 apostles died for Christ during the course of their ministry. And John was allowed to live a long time, but he did suffer persecution continually as a believer of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that he suffered was he was arrested and actually imprisoned for being a witness for Christ and teaching on the resurrection and faith in Christ in the Roman Empire. And so actually that's where he is when he's writing the, uh, the book of Revelation. He's actually in prison on a remote island probably enduring hard labor, maybe as an 80- or 90-year-old man. And then uh, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to John and unveiled this vision of the end times to John. And then when the visions were over, John wrote this down, being moved and guided by the Holy Spirit, thus securing its inerrancy and infallibility as a message and word from God for us. The book of Revelation, looking at verse 1, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is really the title and the theme of the book. We've talked about the Greek word here, apocalypsis. Apocalypse now. That was a movie that came out like in the 70s. Apocalypsis is a Greek word. It means something very specific. It means to unveil, to reveal. And many times it means to unveil or reveal something for the first time. So really a lot of the stuff and details of, that we see in Revelation are being revealed to humanity for the first time. Apocalypsis, that's what that means. And so this is the revelation, the unveiling, the revealing of Jesus Christ, uh, coming down from the authority of Jesus Christ regarding the ultimate ministry and all of God's plan throughout history with the culmination of Jesus being coronated as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it's really a look to the future. As it goes on, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God the Father gave to Jesus to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. He sent and communicated it by his angel to 
his bondservant John, John the Apostle. And John bore witness to the Word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to everything that he saw. And Revelation is actually put together with five specific visions uh, that John was given. The first vision is John, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, and goes up to the end of chapter 3. And then we'll see the rest of them as we go. These five specific visions he was able to see, really, of the future, mostly. And he writes them down. Five visions. And he weaves them together in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The byproduct is the book of Revelation. Uh, Verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy or this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. We've pointed out this is the only book in the Bible that promises a specific blessing for those who read it, hear it, understand it, and apply it to their life. And again, highlighting that Revelation is not some esoteric, mysterious book beyond comprehension. God gave it to His people so that they could understand it and apply it to their life. You mean I can apply Revelation to my life? Absolutely. God wants us to. It's a practical book. That's 2 Timothy 3.16 where it says, All Scripture, all inspired writings are God-breathed. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for believers, for reproof, for correction, for rebuke, for training in righteousness so that the man and woman of God may be adequate, thoroughly furnished, totally complete in this life to serve Christ. All Scripture, Revelation is a part of that all Scripture. So a Christian is not complete that doesn't read, study, understand, and apply the book of Revelation. 22 chapters. There's a lot of content there. So this is part of the arsenal that God wants to equip us with to live life in a way that glorifies and pleases Him. Absolutely essential. And I just I can't understand Christians who avoid the book of Revelation or especially pastors who avoid it deliberately. Uh, God wants us to understand it. He wants us to be blessed by reading it and studying it. And God will bless you if you... Read it and apply it to your life. Then he goes on at the end of verse 3, so you'll have a blessing, he, the things which are written in it. And again, at the end of verse 3, he repeats kind of a phrase that he said in the first verse, and that is, for the time is near. The time is at hand, said verse 1. It must shortly take place. For the time is near. It must shortly take place. A lot of people scratch their head now. I thought Revelation was like mostly future, and a lot of it is about this tribulation and the millennium, and the eternal state, and yet we've been waiting around, twiddling our thumbs for 2,000 years, and John has the gall to say that it must shortly take place. What's up with that? seems inconsistent. That's one of the critiques that Revelation is assaulted with. Well, people just don't understand uh, what God is trying to say here. The things that must shortly take place, all, all God is saying is that the events of the book of Revelation, starting in chapter 1, and also 2 and 3, which refers to the churches in the church age, which is still going on. This must all take place. There's a proper sequence of all of world history that God has laid out and it's heading in that direction and it is certain to happen. And there are certain things that it had to happen first. There had to be creation and then God knew there was going to be a fall and He was going to rectify the fall with promises and God knew there was going to be Noah and an ark and then Abraham had to happen and then all of the Old Testament prophets and God knew that had to happen and that was His plan and it was all leading up to Christ and Christ had to be born and live his perfect life and die on the cross and rise from the dead and send out his apostles and commission them and that had to happen and the church had to be established. All these very sequential, specific things that had to be set in place before the end times could happen. And so that's what John means at the end of the age writing the last book of the Bible that, oh, okay, we are there now. Everything is set in place for all things that Christ has prophesied to be fulfilled. The foundation has been laid. 
Christ has already come. He's risen. He's commissioned his apostles. He's established the church. The New Testament has been written. And so, in other words, the launch sequence of all of world history has been activated. And literally, the, the clock is ticking away. That's what that means. The time is near. We are in the last days. That's what John the Apostle said in his epistle. We are in the last days. Right now, we are in chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation. And when 2 and 3 of Revelation have transpired and fulfilled, then immediately chapters 4 through 22 are going to kick in. So there's a sequence. There is a very specific plan that God has. So the time is indeed near. And then, uh, so John... He gets this, so Revelation chapter 1, picking up at verse 9, John's in prison, he's working away, he's working hard, and he is uh, given the privilege of this vision, actually a literal appearance of the majestic risen Jesus Christ who appears to John and tells him, uh, I'm going to give you the revelation. And so that's what the rest of chapter 1 is all about, is John's experience of the glorified Christ. Uh, verse 19 is key, Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, if you haven't highlighted it or noted it or lodged it in your brain, Revelation 119 is God's outline of the whole book of Revelation, of how it is going to unfold. Jesus tells John the Apostle there on Patmos, write therefore the things which you have seen, everything you've seen about this vision in chapter 1 that just happened, write it down, John. That's the first point of the outline of Revelation. Write therefore the things which you just seen, John. Point number two, write the things which are. What are those? That's the church age. That's Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We just finished that. The things which you have seen, the things which are, and it's not just the local churches of Asia Minor, it is the church age, the entire church period. We know that because every one of Jesus' addresses to the seven churches concludes with, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, the Spirit of God, says to the churches. Plural. That is a prophetic utterance and proclamation of Jesus Christ. Meaning that it goes beyond and transcends those immediate churches, but also applies to believers of all the ages. So the things which are, is the entire church age, which envelops us. That's where we are right now. And then after the church age is point number three at the end of verse 19. Right there for the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. The things which shall take place after these things. That phrase, the things that will take place after these things is a technical prophetic phrase, and we looked at it earlier, that came right out of the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2. And it was referring to end times events. End times events. And so that's what that phrase refers to. Uh, point number three, John, I'm going to tell you about things which shall take place after these things. I'm going to tell you about the things that will happen after the church age. That is literally what that means. It comes right out of the book of Daniel. By the way, just some things you need to understand about the book of Revelation to understand it better or to comprehend it better is there are about a 404 verses in our English Bible in Revelation. 404. There are almost 280. 280 of those verses are direct allusions or references to the Old Testament, mostly in the prophetic writings. If you do not have a good understanding, comprehension of the Old Testament, you're going to miss most of the book of Revelation and the implications of what John is saying. 280 out of 404 verses come right out of the Old Testament. Direct allusions, fulfilled prophecy, uh, specific imagery, specific typology being fulfilled. It's all over the place. It's almost in every verse as I'm going through it and I don't even have time to explain it or refer back to it. 
Um, so it makes for good study, but you've got to understand that Revelation is built on the Old Testament. It is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Another thing you need to understand about the book of Revelation as far as its genre or what kind of writing it is, it is just simply a prophetic book. It is the exact same kind of prophetic book that all the Old Testament prophetic books are. So in other words, you read and study Revelation and apply it the same way you would read Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Jonah and Micah and Nahum and Hosea. There's, there's no difference. And, and people get messed up because they think it's, oh, this is a mystical kind of a book and it's got to be handled differently and only, only the elite and the esoteric can understand it and explain it for the rest of us. That is not true. God wants His church and all of His people to read it and understand it. And it is prophetic literature. We know that because chapter 1, verse 3, he says, this is a prophecy. And in the last chapter of Revelation, chapter 22, he three times he says, this is a prophecy. This is prophetic, biblical literature. And we study it like any other book of the Bible. So you should study Revelation like you read Genesis, the Gospel of John, or the book of Romans. Really. And that, all I mean by that is at face value. The problem is Augustine, who did a lot of great things, kind of messed up some things too. And he introduced allegorical interpretation to the church. And if you try to interpret Revelation allegorically, you're going to get messed up all over the place. Just do the simple thing. Read it at face value with the Spirit of God helping you and good helps and teaching and you'll understand it very clearly and you can apply it to your life. So uh, just some prerequisites that are going to help us as we continue to go through Revelation, the impossible book. Mission impossible, some people would say, we're undertaking. I don't think so. So let's go ahead. Um, so this threefold outline, chapter 1, the things which John saw, chapters 2 and 3, the church historically and also the church age and promises that pertain to us. And I do want to highlight one of the promises that pertain and have implications for the future, and that was in Revelation 3.10 where Jesus was talking to an obedient church, Philadelphia. They didn't get rebuked for anything. Most of the churches got reprimanded or rebuked by Christ for compromise, sin, negligence, being unbiblical, whatever. Philadelphia was just commended by Christ. It was an obedient church. Not a perfect church, but an obedient church. A healthy church. And here's one of the promises to the church of Philadelphia, and I think for churches and Christians of all time, in light of the promise, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Huge promise. One of my favorite verses in Revelation. Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I, the Lord Jesus, will keep you from the hour of testing, the hour of trial. The time period of testing. Well, when is that? That hour which is about to come upon. So it's future. It's about to come upon. Is it local? Was it just in Philadelphia? Was it just in Jerusalem? Was it just in Palestine? No. That time of testing which is about to come upon the entire world. And Jesus said the exact same thing in Matthew 24. Daniel said the same thing. This is a worldwide tribulation. Jesus called it a tribulation. Revelation calls it a tribulation. Daniel called it a tribulation. It is universal. It is worldwide. It is yet future. It is coming. It is orchestrated by God. It is for the purpose of testing, trying earth dwellers. And earth dwellers 13 times in the book of Revelation are unbelieving God-haters. That's another technical term. That is a promise to the church. That is a promise to believers. There is a tribulation coming. There is worldwide wrath and devastation coming from God. But it is for the purpose of testing and trying earth dwellers, those who are opposed to God, who willfully 
deliberately, knowingly shake their fist at God. And we're going to see that in Revelation because they literally do that. While at the same time, God is protecting his own. I think he protects the church by removing them from that time of testing. So that takes us now. Go ahead and look at Revelation chapter 1. So now we move to future things. The prophetic elements of the book of Revelation are really chapters 4 all the way to chapter 22, verse 6, and then a conclusion to the book. This is all future. You can pick up most commentaries and they're going to have a mix. Well, some of it is future and some of it is not. Or some of it's idealistic and applies to all of life from Genesis 1-1 all throughout history. Let's say, no, it doesn't. This is future. This is prophecy. It is clear. So let's look at chapter 4, verse 1 and following. After these things, uh, by that phrase there, which John uses at least five times, after these things I looked, he says, after these things I looked, or after these things I heard, or after these things I saw. That phrase is used five times in Revelation. It always refers to a new vision that he's having. So he's having the second of his fifth visions that God gave him right now. After these things. After the, th- the things I just saw about the church. Here's a new vision that John is getting. After these things I looked, and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here. More like, Come up here. Is that better? And I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting on the throne was like a jasper stone, and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the spirits of God. The seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion. And the second creature, like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings. This is kind of fun to draw these things as you go. As your mind is spinning and you find your... But anyway... They are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy art Thou, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power For thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. Well, this is amazing. We have now entered with John the very throne room of God. Which is why I titled the sermon regarding the throne room of God. John is now having the privilege, the unique privilege, given to very few people in all of world history to have a direct vision of, of what heaven is like and where God's abode is. Absolutely amazing. I only want to address the first three verses of this chapter because I knew I wanted to summarize some things and because the first three verses really focus on one thing and then the rest of the chapter focuses on something else. So we'll pick up the rest of chapter 4 next week. 
It is important to keep in mind that Revelation 4 and 5 actually go together. When John wrote this, he didn't write chapter breaks and verse breaks. He didn't have punctuation. So 4 and 5 should be kept in mind as a unit. It stays together. It is one scene. 4 and 5 is John in the throne room of heaven and he's just looking around and he is amazed and he is in awe and he is fearful and he is excited. And that's why he says, Behold! That means, man, I, you wouldn't believe what I saw. And he's, to the best of his recollection, with the help of the Holy Spirit, he's trying to write this down. But how do you write down the description of an invisible, eternal, ineffable, ineffable God? You can't. All you can do is do the best that you can using human language and metaphor and symbol to try to communicate what you saw. And the Holy Spirit of God is helping him to do that. But 4 and 5 is he is now taken down from... Jesus came down to earth in chapters 1 through 3 to give his revelation. Now Jesus is back in heaven and he's going to take John and launch him up to heaven. And for the rest of the book of Revelation, for the most part, John's vantage point of understanding world history is from the throne room of God. That is his perspective. And it starts right here. From the throne room. And it starts with the two main characters who are in the throne room. Actually, the three. And that is God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb and the Lion, and the Holy Spirit of God, who is the seven spirits of God. The triune God of the universe. From the throne room explains to John how world history is going to end and speaking with authority. So there's four points I want to highlight here regarding those first three verses of John in the throne room. So let's go ahead and look at those main points there. Before I get to the first point, I'll, well, I'll just tell you what it is. That Point number one is that God communicates with His people. God communicates with His people. Did you know that some religions have a God that doesn't communicate with them? There's the, the God of the deists. He came and created everything and then he just kind of left to keep people guessing about what God might want or what we should think. He doesn't communicate. He's transcendent, but he's not imminent with his people. There are gods like that in false religions. Very characteristic. That's not true of the true God, the God of the Bible, the God, the covenant God who makes personal promises and covenants with his beloved people. That is our God. That's the true God. That's the triune God. That's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He communicates with his people. He is transcendent, isn't he? Because he's eternal. He is holy, but he's also imminent. In other words, he relates immediately and always with his people. I am with you wherever you go. I am with you always. Right? That's what Jesus said. God also said that. The Father. So God communicates with His people, but before I get to that point that I want to give more details on, I'm just reminded of how even today I was watching a commercial on some TV show and it had to do with an angel and this lady, she was an angel and she's from heaven and blah, blah. I mean, how many TV shows have there been there where somebody's an angel from heaven, right? Ad infinitum, ad nauseum, and it's been going on for 20 years. And all these best-selling books about uh, heaven and people dying and near-death experiences, and that's been going on for decades Decades and decades. There's, so there's nothing new. This has been going on all throughout history if you studied history too. People who have these paranormal experiences, going to heaven, going to hell, coming back, going to purgatory, coming back, all that stuff. And that's why Charles Dickens, he wrote his story, which he knew was fiction. A Christmas carol. It was sold in the fiction section of a bookstore. Because Dickens knew it was a story that wasn't true. Well, the problem today is people aren't selling those books in the fiction Story. They're selling them in the nonfiction story, claiming that they are true. A couple of examples that I wanted to mention because they were bestsellers in 2006 and 2007, respectively. In 2006, a book came out called 23 Minutes in Hell. 
It was just a runaway bestseller. 23 minutes. Apparently some guy dies. He goes to hell. He's there for 23 minutes. Comes back. Writes a book about it to tell everybody and warn everybody what hell is like. True story, it says, by the way. I'm thinking, I don't think so. Then a year later, 90 minutes in heaven. So we got 23 minutes in hell and another guy comes along. 90 minutes in heaven. I got one better. Hey, he saw that that other one was a bestseller. I can top that. More minutes and in heaven. Who wants to go to hell? 90 minutes in heaven. And right on the front cover, it says, a true story of one man. I'm thinking, no, I don't believe it. I don't even have to read the book. But I did. Peruse through it. And I would say it is not true. It is not a true story. Well, how do you know that, McManus? You're so critical and such a cynic. No. I'm just trying to obey First Thessalonians 5 and many other warnings. Do not be deceived. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Cling to that which is good. False teaching and deception is evil. So all you got to do is read the book 90 Minutes in Heaven and you realize uh, and compare that. So compare that book with the book and you realize, well, they contradict one another. Uh, the Bible is clear and it shows all the falsehoods in this book and it's to be rejected and you can't believe it. We don't need somebody's personal experience in 2007 to go to heaven and come back and tell us what heaven is like because God's already thoroughly explained everything we need to know about heaven because he talks about heaven over 500 times in the Bible and explicitly and in the greatest detail in the book of Revelation, revealing it to us. So just be warned and don't be deceived. And even Christians are sucked into that at times and led and buying those books because they're sold in Christian bookstores. The author of 90 Minutes in Heaven, by the way, is Don Piper, not John Piper. Huge difference. John Piper, good. Don Piper, bad. I mean, his book is bad. He might be a nice guy. But if you want to know about heaven, and if you want to know about hell from God's point of view and a true point of view, then just read the book of Revelation because the Revelation is a lot about heaven. It gives more detail about heaven than any other book. It also goes into graphic detail about what hell is like, will be like, is like right now, why it was created, everything. So let's go ahead and do that. Uh, and, and all these books that talk about uh, heaven and hell and death experiences coming back from the dead, they, they are sensationalistic usually. Uh, and they tend to major on bizarre, wacky, crazy, silly, absurd things. Whereas in Revelation, you don't have that. A perfect example is Revelation 4. If you think about what it focuses on, not all the weird, zany, interesting, curious stuff, it emphasizes on the right thing, the triune God of the universe, His will, His person, His purpose. That's where the focus should be, and we're going to see that. And that's why every one of these four points, the first word is God. If you want to know about heaven, it is theocentric. God is at the center. If you want to know about heaven, it is Christocentric. It is Christ-centered, not anthropocentric, man-centered. So here's God's revelation of heaven. Absolutely amazing. And the focal point in the epicenter is theocentric. It is God himself. And let's not lose focus as we go. So back to point number one is God communicates with his people. See this in verse 1, after these things, after the first vision, I'm gonna ha I had a second vision, and I looked, and behold. So John, in all these visions all throughout Revelation, pretty much all five of his senses are intact and participating in the revelation that he was given by God. There are things that he was able to touch somehow, see and look and read. He could even taste and feel. So all of his sensations were intact. And two times it says he was in the spirit. He was in a, a spiritual mode somehow as God gave him revelation. In or out of the body, I don't know. Because that's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12 when Paul was allowed to go to the third heaven and see the glories of heaven. And he said, whether I was in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but I was in heaven. 
And all of John's sensibilities, his five senses are intact as he's having this vision. And that's why he can actually look, behold, and see. Because he's in the spiritual realm. Amazingly, miraculously, supernaturally, by the power of God, I looked and behold, and there was a door standing open in heaven. It's already been open. So he just sees it open. This is phraseology right out of Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. Ezekiel had the same experience, same vision. So John is looking. Uh, he sees a door open in heaven and the first voice which I heard, which is Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, where the trumpet was speaking. Someone with an authoritative voice that was as powerful as many waters, that was as powerful as the sound of a trumpet, was speaking with John in Revelation chapter 1, and that was Jesus Christ. It is the same voice. This is Jesus Christ in glory speaking to John. Jesus is now in heaven, and he's going to speak to John, his bondservant. And the first voice which I had heard, which is Jesus Christ, like the sound of a trumpet, the sound of a trumpet, it's authoritative. It is deliberate. It is confident. Like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here. That is a command from Jesus Christ. It's the same way that Jesus Christ in a few words could say, Lazarus, come forth. And after being dead for four days, he defies death, rises from the dead and and walks out in the same manner. These few words come up here and instantaneously John is translated into the spiritual realm and literally in heaven in the presence of God. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. In verse 2, that's exactly what happened. Immediately, in a moment of an eye, I was in the Spirit. Boom. Translated into heaven. John was an eyewitness of the glories of heaven. Very few people had that privilege. Isaiah did. Ezekiel did. Daniel did. Just a few of the prophets is all. The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, man, talk about torture. He was allowed to see the third heaven and he wasn't allowed to tell anybody. Not even his best friends. That's torture. John gets to reveal the details that Paul couldn't tell us. Immediately I was in the Spirit and behold, there is a throne standing in heaven. Isn't that amazing how the first thing when he gets to heaven is boom, he sees the throne of Almighty God. Because that's what occupies front and center glory and all that is important in heaven is the very throne of God. And that is the first thing that John sees when he gets there. Immediately I was in the Spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. So point number one is God communicates with His people. Uh, Jesus wants to give John this information so that John will know the future, so that John can communicate it to the saints and the bondservants and the saints of the ages so that we can be informed, so that we can know. God wants us to understand His revelation and truth. That is called the doctrine of perspicuity. That we understand clearly what God's revealed will is. He's not trying to keep secrets from His people. He wants us to know the future. That gives us security. Man, if I know what's going to happen and that God is in charge and He is in control and that everything is going according to plan and God is still on the throne and that Jesus wins in the end and I am on His team, that is encouraging. That is comforting, isn't it? Especially in light of the trials of this life. Because we get so myopic and so weighed down, we can't even see straight. Because we're so weak. God wants to comfort His people. He does that by communicating with them because He is a person. We are persons made in His image. Therefore, God can communicate with His people. And just that beautiful phrase, after this, I heard. God spoke with me. I saw. God communicated to me. God communicates with His people. Number two, very comforting truth here, is that God controls the future. 
God controls the future. Is anybody here, you don't have to raise your hand, is anybody here worried about something that might or might not happen this week? I am. I'm worried about what happened last week. But anyway, or is anybody here worried about what might or might not happen in the next month or the next year or the next five years, whether it's your business or your children or your personal life or your money or your finances? We, we continually worry, don't we? And almost all of our worry usually is connected with the future. What will happen, could happen, might happen. Not sure if it's going to happen. Well, one of the ways to comfort your hearts is this great truth, keeping in mind that God controls the future without a doubt. Everything that's going on, He is on the throne. I remember when I was in college and about to get married and just about to graduate, and I went to my pastor at the time, who was Johnny Mac, and I had something totally weighing me down and troubling me and giving me great anxiety, and I was going to, you know, I thought I'd, share it with him and pour out my heart and then he's going to spend 20 minutes holding my hand and counseling me and praying with me and so I told him my problem and all I said was well the Lord's still on the throne and then and that was it and then he walked off I was like wow that that wasn't warm and fuzzy did that really solve my problem but anyway what he said was true he's trying to get my eyes off of self off of problem off of circumstances get him where they long God is on the throne And that is what's going on here. God is on the throne. And in this case, he controls the future. And he assures John of that because uh, of that phrase right there. Uh, John, I need to show you in fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises and in fulfillment of what I said in chapter 1 at the end of verse 1, he says, I will show you what must take place. These are very specific words. These Greek words being used. Must take place. Beyond a doubt. It is certain to happen. It is absolutely going to happen. Uh, history is going to unfold exactly as I have decreed from before the foundation of the world. This will take place. You know, and many unbelievers look at Revelation, they laugh, they scoff at what we believe in. Who are you going to believe? The Lord Jesus Christ is saying these things must take place. He's reminding John, I am in control of the future. I am in control of the future. God is in control of the future. Just a couple of verses. Go back to Acts chapter 1. Jesus is really reminding John... Many years later, something he said after Jesus rose from the dead. So Jesus trains his apostles for three and a half years, says the kingdom is coming, I'm going to reign over the earth, I'm going to be the king of the kings. And then Jesus rises from the dead, and then John the apostle says, oh good, you're risen from the dead now. Okay, now is world history going to end, and you're going to take over and get rid of the Romans and uh, all the oppressors, and we're going to reign with you in glory forever and ever. Is that going to happen now, Jesus? Huh? Is it? Huh? huh? And Jesus says to the apostles, uh, relax, slow down. There's a bigger plan. And in Acts chapter 1, listen to what Jesus tells the apostles after his resurrection. Starting at verse 6. And so when they had come together, the apostles with the resurrected Jesus, they were asking Jesus. They kept pestering him over and over again. And here was their question. Lord, Jesus, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Not yet. The important point there is that the Father is in charge of world history. The Father has a fixed order of events that will transpire, and that's what Jesus is saying to John in Revelation. God is in charge of the future. He knows the future. He will carry it out to every last detail. Look at another great verse, very encouraging in Isaiah. Isaiah, about the middle of your Bible there, in Isaiah chapter 46. Again, highlighting the truth that God is in control of the future. He doesn't just know the future. Some people think that. That's their view of God. Well, God knows the future. 
And since he knows the future, he's pretty good at predicting how people will re- react and respond. And then God does other things based on how people will respond because he knows the future. That's not true. God is in charge of the future. God dictates the future. God decrees the future. It's not just He doesn't just know the future. He's not just reacting to people based on how they might react, based on his knowledge of the future. Listen to this. Isaiah 46, starting at verse 8. God says this, remember this and be assured, be assured, remember this, remember this about my nature as creator, almighty God, recall it to mind you transgressors, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other, I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, isn't that amazing, that's what God does, he declares the end from the beginning, he is the author of history and everything that happens in between. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Wow. And that's how we can trust in Revelation 4 through 22 that it is going to happen exactly the way God has laid it out. God is in control of the future. And as a result, he is a solid rock bed that we can stand on in faith, knowing that regardless if my life has fallen apart around me, It's okay. God's in control of the future. Nothing happens by mistake, coincidence, or chance. Everything, even the bad things in our life, fall into the funnel of Romans 8.28 where God works all things together for good as He looks to the future. For those who love God. Very encouraging. So God communicates with His people very specifically and intimately. He controls the future and even our own personal lives. Point number three. God is completely sovereign. Sovereign. The word reign is in the word sovereign, if you notice. R-E-I-G-N, the word in. To reign, to be king, to be in charge, to have authority, to be the boss, to know what's going on. That's what sovereign means. That's God. God is completely sovereign. He's not just kind of sovereign. He's totally sovereign, completely sovereign. We see this in just this short description of, of God who is on the throne John was in the Spirit, and for the first thing he saw at the middle of verse 2, he said, a throne, the throne of God. The throne is used all throughout the Old Testament of God being in charge, being in control. He sees everything from his perspective in heaven. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. Psalm 47, verse 8 says this, God reigns over the nations. He reigns over all the nations of the earth. God sits on his holy throne. God reigns on high, and that's exactly what's going on here. That's the picture and imagery. God is described as one sitting on His throne. By the way, in the verse 2 it says that uh, John saw a throne standing. So he sees a throne which speaks of God's authority and power. It, the, this throne is standing, meaning it is in place, it is unshakable, it is fixed, it is permanent. That is our God. All-powerful, unchangeable, totally in control. So there's a throne standing in heaven. So John sees the throne and then the key phrase in the middle of verse 2, there's one sitting on the throne. That is God the Father. It doesn't call Him the Father here. It doesn't describe Him as a man or in human form or anything like that. It just keeps calling Him the One. The One sitting on the throne. This is picturesque. This is symbolic imagery that John is trying to communicate a truth that he saw the immediate direct presence of Almighty God in charge in heaven. We know from Scripture that God the Father does not have a body. He doesn't have a physical body. Jesus does right now in His glorified body. God the Father does not have a body. The Holy Spirit does not have a physical body. Scripture also says that no man can see God the Father in all of His glory and live. We can only see His glory 
that represents who he is. That's how amazing God is. And that's what John's trying to describe here. The ineffable glory of God. And he's doing his best to use language we can understand as it represents God's immediate presence was there. And he looks and there's a throne and God is in control. And key phrase, God is sitting on that throne. And the picture is the the judge is presiding. The judge is in session. The judge is in action. He is making decisions. He is rendering verdicts. He is in charge. The throne is not vacant. God is not on vacation. That's what it means. He is sitting. He is active. And the whole point is there are some tumultuous terrible, frightening, amazing, unprecedented things that are going to happen starting in chapter 6 all the way to verse 22 that devastate the world and the very heavens themselves. And it all issues from the one sitting on the throne. God is totally sovereign over everything that is about to be unleashed. This answers the problem of evil that they say is the greatest nemesis, the greatest stumbling block to the truthfulness of Christianity is the problem of evil. Oh, look at all these things around the world that are happening that are horrible and devastations and poverty and natural disasters and people doing terrible, wicked things. And how can there be a good God in heaven if all these things are... That's called the problem of evil. Well, the problem of evil is answered in the book of Revelation because we know that all this bad stuff that is happening is being issued by, orchestrated and overseen by Almighty God Himself for a very specific purpose. He is the one sitting on the throne. He is totally in control. And again, his authoritative voice, along with the Lord Jesus Christ, the voice of the sound of a trumpet, totally in charge. So God's completely in control. He's totally sovereign. And for the rest of the book of Revelation, we are to keep in mind that John is seeing everything happen as he is beside or in front of or bowed down before the one who's sitting on the throne. God is sovereign. And that's why when I got that pastoral counsel so long ago, it was spot on. I've got all these problems going on in my life. Well, the Lord is still on the throne. He's still presiding. He's still interceding on your behalf. He still cares about you. It's all working according to His plan. Cliff, wake up, see it. That's really what He was saying to me. Very encouraging. So God communicates with His people very intimately. God controls the future, every detail the good things and the bad things, and God is completely sovereign and totally in control. It's awesome. And then finally, number four. So John sees the throne. He sees it standing there fixed. He sees the one sitting on the throne who's totally in control. We're going to see more details about him. And then he tries to describe the one sitting on the throne. And the best he can come up with in verse three is this. So here's John trying to Describe for us the infinite, eternal, invisible God of the universe. How's that for a challenge? Of what he, what does God look like? Because he didn't have a body. Well, here's what he came up with. Verse three: the one that was sitting on the throne was like a jasper stone. Well, that's really helpful, John. Thank you. What is a jasper stone anyway? The best we can determine: a jasper stone was a diamond, or like a diamond. So it was translucent. It was pure. Probably the most Pure gem and stone in existence that we know of. So he's probably, he's trying to describe God as a jasper stone. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 21, uh, verse 11, it refers to a jasper stone as crystal clear. It speaks of God's absolute purity, His translucence. And, and a beautiful diamond like that, it's just, you know, emanating with all kinds of color and light and radiance and beauty beyond description, really. 
It defies description. But the emphasis here on the stone is the purity of it, the holiness of God. So he describes God as a a diamond, a jasper stone. Not only that, he does it with uh, another description. The one sitting on the throne is like a jasper stone and uh, a sardius stone in appearance. Oh, point number four, God is all glorious, all glorious. Speaking of his description. So he's like a pure diamond. And then the second stone, he says, and God's also like a sardius stone. And the best we can determine pretty surely that a, a, a sardius stone was like a deep blood red, like a dark ruby which many times read in this kind of read all throughout Scripture and the many visions that many of the prophets had. Isaiah had a, a, a prophecy. He saw the throne of heaven. Ezekiel saw a detailed one in chapter 1 and other chapters. Micaiah in the book of Kings saw the throne of God. Daniel saw the throne of God. And in all these heavenly visions they had as they're trying to describe what was going on in heaven as all they saw was there's lights and there's lightning and there's brilliance and there's majesty and there's radiance and there's colors flailing all over the place. And that's the best they can do. But one of the common themes is this color of bright, resilient red. Which many times that, that color speaks of the wrath of God. The purifying fire and wrath and judgment of God. That is exactly what's going to happen in 6 through 22. Is the coming wrath, the purifying wrath of God. So you've got these two stones, what God is compared like. The purity and holiness of the diamond. And then the wrath. The red wrath. His holiness, His wrath. And they go together. As a matter of fact, he's a wrathful God and he must be a wrathful God because it flows from his holiness, his intolerance of sin. That's how God is described. He is the judge. He is the rightful judge. And that's how he's described in this amazing terminology. And there's all kinds of Old Testament overtones to these two stones because the, the uh, sardius stone, these two stones, the jasper and the sardius, were actually the first and the last stones of the high priest's breastplate of the twelve Stone. So it's almost, it includes all of the stones, all of God's people in the midst of horrific wrath that is coming for sinners. God is remembering his promise to his people, particularly Israel, by virtue of the high priest that God held his 12 tribes to his breast intimately to protect them in the midst of his holy wrath that comes down on unbelievers. It's amazing. So this is what John is saying. And then finally, so he's got this holiness, he's got this wrath, but that's beautifully complemented because God is not just a God of wrath. He's not like Zeus, who's mad and angry all the time because he couldn't get a date or whatever his problem was. God's attributes are perfectly balanced all the time. A perfect balance. Because God is not just a God of holiness. He's not just a God of wrath. He's also a God of love and grace and mercy and patience and goodness and kindness. And you see that balance in the last description that John has of Almighty God, the end of verse 3. Not only was there a jasper stone in Sardius, speaking of His holiness and judgment, but it's balanced perfectly at the end of verse 3. There was a rainbow. A rain- Immediately, you, you know, you're catapult back in the Old Testament where God judged and wiped out the world and then He made this wonderful, beautiful promise to Noah and His people with the rainbow. The rainbow is a sign of God's promise, of His mercy, of His grace in the midst of judgment. That's exactly what's going on here. There's a rainbow, and literally the Greek word for rainbow here, because there's two words for rainbow. This word is iris, which means circle. This is a rainbow that just goes all the way around. A circle around his throne. It's emerald green. Green, speaking of God's mercy, of life, of grace. So in the midst of judgment, you have grace, mercy, and life. That's God. That's the perfect balance. He's the judging God. He is the loving God. He's the majestic God. He is the merciful God. He is the holy God. He's the God who keeps His promises to His people. And that's exactly what He is as John sees Him on the throne. An all-glorious, perfect, 
blessed Creator and Savior. And for the rest of the book of Revelation, this great God is dictating to John how the world is going to end to warn unbelievers so that they might come and repent and to comfort believers to know that they are secure in their relationship with Him. Let's go ahead and pray to this great God and thank Him for His Word. Father, we do thank You for our time together. and God, I thank You for not only communicating Your truth to John and the early church and that they wrote it down, but thank You for preserving it over time, 2,000 years through Your people, faithfully and through the Holy Spirit, so that today, even though it's it's old, it's ancient, we can still count on it and trust it. And we can be encouraged just as much as John was when you revealed this to him. Thank you for reminding us of your character. Help us to have a balanced view of you, that you're a holy God of wrath and at the same time a loving God who keeps promises and extends mercy to sinners. God, those of us who know you personally through Jesus Christ, his crucifixion and resurrection, may we bask in that forgiveness that you extend on an ongoing basis today through the gospel. And that you keep working in the hearts and wooing others to you that don't know you yet. And may we pray on their behalf. Thank you so much for being a good and gracious God as we commit all things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit GBF sv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.